You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, uh, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where we're finding you. Um, and welcome to the United States Institute of Peace uh, virtual conversation. Uh, my name is Dan Markey. I'm a senior advisor with the South Asia program at USIP. Uh, and it's a real pleasure uh, today to be able to introduce uh, the two authors, the co-authors of a recent uh, USIP report and to uh, be able to host a conversation with them about the contents of that report and its implications. Um, now, our plan today is to have a moderated conversation uh, at the outset, and then eventually uh, we'll open the floor uh, to your questions from the audience. And so I just wanted to flag that from the, from the outset, that for those of us who are joining us uh, virtually, you can do so on a variety of different platforms, but if you wish to ask a question, the best way to do that is through usip.org, uh, where you'll be able to find a, a question function. You can just type it in, and that way it'll, it'll get to me so that I can pose it um, to our two authors. Um, what I'd like to begin by doing, of course, is to introduce our two authors, uh, and uh, they are on the screen with me now. Um, the first is Mubashir Hassan. Uh, he is an adjunct research fellow in the Humanitarian and Development Research Initiative at the School of uh, Social Science and Psychology in the University of Western Sydney. Uh, he's the author of the book, Islam and Politics in Bangladesh, uh, published in, in 2020, and the co-editor of the book, Radicalization in South Asia, published in 2019. He's a member of the Research Advisory Council at the Resolve Network and formerly a Resolve Network Fellow in Bangladesh in 2017. He worked as a researcher at the University of Oslo, Norway from 2018 to 2020 and taught political science and journalism in Bangladeshi universities. In 2022, Griffith Business School at Griffith University in Australia awarded Mubasher with an outstanding International Alumnus Award for his works on democracy and human rights in Bangladesh. He holds a PhD from Griffith University in Australia. So he's our first author. Our second author is Jeffrey MacDonald. He is a senior advisor for Asia and Bangladesh at the International Republican Institute. And he is uh, from 2018 to 2022. He was IRI's Bangladesh country director, where he oversaw IRI's programs on countering violent extremism and other democracy and governance issues. He lived in Dhaka from 2019 to 2022, uh, sorry, to 2021, and continues to travel to Bangladesh regularly. He's written over a dozen articles, reports, and book chapters on Bangladesh, which have been published by Foreign Policy, the Council on Foreign Relations, the U.S. Institute of Peace, of course, and other academic and policy outlets. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Denver and has taught political science at Grinnell College, George Washington University, and elsewhere. So obviously we have two uh, tremendous experts on the topic here. Um, and the specific issue that we'll be focusing on, of course, is the persistent challenge of extremism in Bangladesh. And you can uh, access not only this video, but also the report itself on the USIP website. And I would certainly commend it to you um, as a great place to learn more about this issue. But for now, we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Um, I'm going to kick it off with a question uh, for, for Jeffrey, um, a general question. You know, this report looks at the topic of extremism in Bangladesh. And I guess one good place to start would be to ask how you actually define extremism and how your report tries to frame uh, that issue. Thanks, Dan, and good morning, good evening to, to those watching today. I think to frame our report, Mubashir and I wanted to critically assess this narrative in Bangladesh as a country that essentially has extremism under control, right, in, in recent years. And look, of course, in some sense, this is, is certainly true. Terrorism is down precipitously in Bangladesh since the Holy Artisan attack. The audience is probably familiar with the Holy Artisan attack in July of 2016. Five militants stormed uh, a cafe in the diplomatic zone of downtown Dhaka. 
executed 20 hostages. Um, it, it, was, it had a long standoff. It was a quite spectacular attack that I think shocked a lot of international observers. And I think kind of shook a lot of the, the domestic policymakers in Bangladesh. And since that point, we've seen a real decline in terrorist attacks um, and, and, and deaths due to, to terrorism. And this is certainly uh, due in part to effective state action and a lot of international attention and funding. But since that point, we've seen attention wane on this issue. And so we felt that this narrative about kind of Bangladesh having kind of controlled this is kind of conflating extremism and terrorism in a way that obscures other types of violence, behavior of beliefs that kind of might share some of the maybe ideological correlates of Islamist extremism that drove the holy artisan attack. And these are kind of violence against LGBTQ people, Ahmadiyya, Hindu minority, atheists, and others. And so we wanted to examine this issue with a a broader lens. And I'll take just a minute more to talk about what that lens was. And so we structured this report around a spectrum of religious extremism, essentially defined by its level of militancy. So we got on the one end, religiously inspired or grounded illiberalism that's often held by many ordinary citizens in Bangladesh. This can include intolerant or violent attitudes towards right, the LGBTQ community, religious minorities, other minority groups. These attitudes often don't necessarily result in violence unless there's a specific incident that provokes it, or you see elite manipulation on the issue. Right On the other end of the spectrum, You've got violent extremist organizations like ISIS, AQIS, which continue to advocate and employ violence to support an Islamic political and social agenda in Bangladesh. And then in the middle, you've got these organized Islamist groups that are certainly illiberal, right, and advocate a strict form of Islamic governance, but typically do not openly promote violence. And so you've got this spectrum, which, you know, of, of organizations or ideas that share this illiberal and exclusionary interpretation of Islam, but have differing degrees of ideological coherence and willingness to use violence. And so we thought this spectrum, which we use in the report, better captures this challenge of religious extremism in Bangladesh. And of course, you know, there's, we always have to create the, use the caveat here that religious extremism to Islam or unique to Islam, but as a Muslim-majority country, um, Islamist extremism is the, the most prevalent and consequential form of religious extremism, so it's the, the focus of our report. Oh, that's great, and a great way to kick things off uh, in terms of, of framing uh, the various issues and and how, at some level, they're interconnected. I want to get into that a little bit more, um, but let me let me uh, push it over to Mabasher uh, now and and get a different aspect of of the framing of the report um, because you know in this report it's clear that there are some complicated relationships between a series of different ideas. Um, you've got uh, Islam, as Jeffrey was just talking about, not necessarily a driver, but is certainly, certainly implicated uh, in these questions. You've got secularism, which is a critical part of, of Bangladesh's political history. You've got just outright politics in the normal sense of contestation for power, uh, and you have violence. Um, which is obviously the thing that worries us in some ways the most. So I, I'd like you to at least pick a, a piece of this, and, and maybe you can focus on the relationship between um, religion and secularism in Bangladesh um, and, and how that relates to this question of uh, Islamic militancy within that environment, um, which doesn't make Bangladesh unique, uh, but certainly uh, is a bit different from other societies, and, and it's worth thinking about it in its in its own uh, context. Thanks, Dan. Um, it's a it's a great question. Um, I think when we talk about religion and secularism in Bangladesh, it's uh, it's complicated and it's there is no clear cut dichotomy between these two concepts in the country. So in Bangladesh. Um, People, there are people, and and in political spectrum, uh, religion is translated as a pluralist idea, which is um, in many ways true in many contexts, and also um, is secularism 
was translated as a religious idea that is um that that protects people from all faiths and promotes religious harmony so you could see that 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 this lack of clear cut dichotomy uh, makes the uh, issue of Bangladesh and the analysis on Bangladesh quite uh, tough to decipher that what's really going on and what is really what is the boundary between religion and secularism. Um, it, and I, I think what we try to what Jeffrey and I try to uh, unpack in our report is that um, there are many meanings of religion uh, and secularism and and they kind of overlaps in many in political spectrums and when we put that those concepts in relation to um, Islamic militancy and violence, we also need to remember that in Bangladesh, political violence and state violence both are quite prevalent, and we are we are looking at an issue that is uh, part of in in many ways part of cultural production. Uh, when you say cultural production, it means that there are religious violence, there are uh, even secular violence to, to some extent. And within this context, there are many groups that we laid out in our report uh, quite clearly that uh, promotes particular um, particular worldview, and they are also connected with the geopolitical evolution of um, Islamist militants. Again, if I can follow up just just with a, a question to get a little bit more into just this, uh, sort of at a definitional level and a historical level, um, what what is secularism in Bangladesh? Um, because uh, different societies, uh, in a sense, have you know same word, <laughs> but different yeah. practical meanings. And I'd be curious uh, to better understand it in the in the Bangladeshi case. So there are um, there are when we talk about secularism in Bangladesh, uh, we need to be mindful that there are uh, two levels of interpretation. One is from the society level, where uh, there are secular activists and uh, groups, and another is from the political and state. Um, uh, platforms and I, I have seen in my research and uh, through the through our report as well that um, in political spectrum secularism does not exclude religion. Um, so um, you know, prior, the current prime minister Sheikh Hasina has uh, publicly mentioned many times that uh, uh, secularism is uh, part of Islam. Um, and uh, that promotes religious harmony. And if, if we go back to the uh, beginning of the history of, of the emancipation of Bangladesh, even then, even though it was a constitutionally secular state, there are many religious policies being taken. And um, I think the, the, if we want to define political secularism in Bangladesh, um, perhaps the current constitutional notion explains it um, it better, which is it is a constitutionally secular country, but the state has a religion that is Islam. Um, and many people who don't really find it difficult to decipher, but once they would delve into the history, I think it would make more sense. But that is different from the societal explanation of secularism, especially when you talk about uh, secular activists and so forth. Right, right. So at a, at a political level, secularism in Bangladesh doesn't mean the absence of religious faith. Mm. In fact, it means the, the presence of a, of, a, of a vision, but one that's supposed to create space for, for different uh, faiths. Um, mm. But it does th so through a religious uh, lens, which, which, you know, one could be forgiven for finding that a bit complicated, uh, but it's an important uh, thing to, to understand. Um, let's, let's move on. Uh, you know, this report looks at uh, uh, the state of contemporary extremist attitudes um, and violence, as, as Jeffrey, you pointed out, since that horrific uh, 2016 uh, terrorist attack. Um, and it looks at, at four kinds of extremism. So it looks at, at violence, violent extremism, uh, extremist organizations, or uh, in shorthand VEOs. Um, it looks at LGBTQ attacks, it looks at attacks on non-Muslims, 
and it looks at attacks on Muslim minorities and secularists. So I wonder if you could uh, at least pick a, a couple of these and, and give us a little bit more flavor and detail. So maybe the VEO story and the LGBTQ attacks, if, if you're willing. Um, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think these are these two types of violence that, that, that you cited here, kind of the, the VEOs, kind of extremist organizations, and the LGBTQ attacks are kind of on either end of our, our spectrum in, in some ways that, that I laid out at the beginning. And so I can start with the, the violent extremist organizations. And so what we're seeing again over the past now, you know, six years or so, right, since, since, the, since the Holy Artisan attack, there has been a clear decline in incidents of terrorism and deaths due to those incidents. Still, you do see the presence of transnational, regional, domestic extremist groups that continue to operate and recruit in, or at least want to operate and recruit in Bangladesh. And on the on the transnational front, you know, though much diminished, right, in recent years, right, ISIS has released Bangla language propaganda. They they apparently nominated some sort of Bengali emir, right, to, to kind of oversee its operations in Bangladesh. And you've seen ISIS recruitment in Bangladesh focus in on the kind of the what they what they cite as the kind of the oppressive nature of the government that parties are insufficiently muslim that there's too much western and non-muslim influence and isis is taking credit for recent i think it was in in 2019 a, a series of small scale uh, kind of bomb attacks on police and isis took credit for for those attacks and the that the the trial for the holy artisan uh, attackers um one uh, one of the the the, the the attackers came out of the courthouse and was wearing an ISIS cap, right? And, and it was very much shocking to, to, to those watching, right? And it demonstrated a continued, at least social influence of these sorts of transnational uh, terrorist groups. You then have the regional terrorist groups, right? AQIS, Al-Qaeda, in the Indian subcontinent is probably the most prominent, um, you know, they have been implicated in blogger murders and other kinds of violence over the past decade. They continue to recruit online with similar messages to what we see ISIS using about Indian and Hindu influence in the country, a government that's insufficiently Muslim and religious, and that women are inappropriate leaders is another component of their messaging. And of course, Bangladesh has been, been led by almost consecutive women leaders since, since 1991. And then you have a, a series of domestic groups, right? Like you know, Neo JMB, ABT, a lot of acronyms here of these smaller groups that have uh, at least nominal affiliations with those bigger kind of regional and transnational movements. And so, you know, while we have seen this decline in, in terrorist attacks, um, we do see the persistence of, of these organizations. We don't want to overstate this problem, right? I think the scope and reach of these groups is not entirely clear, but they certainly have an undeniable presence online. We continue to see that type of recruitment. And we're seeing Bangladeshi police security forces arrest people who are affiliated with these organizations on the ground. So they're clearly still there and it's still an issue, right? And so that on our kind of spectrum is a kind of one side of that sort of the kind of militant Islamism. On the other side, which again has some relation certainly to it, is the sort of extremism targeting the LGBTQ community. Now, this is a type of extremism that has been perpetrated by some of these extremist organizations that I just laid out. I think it is more often than not, though, takes the form of nonviolent harassment or non-life-threatening -life violence targeting LGBTQ individuals. Right? So you had in 2016 the high-profile murders of two LGBTQ activists, Rohan Manan and, and Tanoi Maboub, which um, you know were were big, right, uh, international events, right, um, kind of got a lot of attention. Since that point, these sorts of high-profile murders of, of LGBTQ activists have declined due probably at least in part to effective state action, but also just LGBTQ activism has gone underground, right? There's been, you, you have a, a real movement away from any kind of public advocacy on this issue. And there's you know, research that, that I've worked on at IRI has shown a lot of this. We conducted a, a snowball sample survey and a focus group study of the LGBTQ community 
in Bangladesh, which show this kind of persistent and routine violence, harassment, social ostracism in the community. This includes within the family, sexual violence from strangers, from the police, discrimination in housing, jobs, medical care, and elsewhere. And in these studies, the, the, the participants cite an illiberal interpretation of Islam as one of the, the key drivers of this violence and discrimination. In, a, in another study, we did a content analysis of online commentary around this incident that occurred in 2020, where a, a, a former of this online education firm posted a pro-LGBTQ comment on his, on his Facebook page, his personal Facebook page, and he immediately started to receive death threats, and the company itself was targeted, and the employees that worked for the company were received death threats. And so what we did was do a, a kind of a content analysis of some of the common, the online commentary on this issue, right, on, on YouTube videos or, or Facebook posts. And we found kind of un, unsurprisingly is that, um, you know, a, a lot of the, these comments and posts, right, were kind of grounded in a kind of religious prohibitions on same-sex intercourse, right, and, and LGBTQ individuals. And so overall, while these, these anti-LGBTQ attitudes in Bangladesh typically, though not always, certainly produce less, I think, deadly violence than the explicitly violent belief systems of these extremist organizations that I discussed earlier, these anti-LGBTQ attitudes are certainly they're more widespread. They're no doubt impact more people, and, and they share a lot of the ideological underpinnings of these organizations, these more explicitly extremist organizations. Which it's why it's on the sort of spectrum of extremism that we wanted to discuss in the paper. Thanks, Jeffrey. Uh, that's that's a really great way to characterize um, kind of uh, again this spectrum of of attitudes. You're you're starting with a sort of highly organized and extremely militant with clear uh, connections to violence on the one hand, and then the other hand, a kind of a diffuse uh, societal. Uh, uh, potential for um, violent views, but uh, with lacking that organization. And so just a quick um, follow-up on that. Actually, I have, a, I have a couple of questions there. Uh, one is, um, you know, you made the point that there, there are kind of ideological underpinnings that, that link these two, but why, maybe this takes you back to your first argument, why see them as like uh, or interconnected. In other words, could you have one without the other? Do the um, highly organized, uh, really violent, maybe most ex most dangerous groups swim in the societal sea of these illiberal attitudes? Um, in other words, do, do they give them sustenance? Uh, or are they basically just operating kind of in parallel? Um, how, do you, how do you actually see the, the connections between the two ends of the spectrum, other than purely on the basis of kind of ideas under underlying them? I would say, I think they, to use your terminology, kind of swim in this kind of sea of, of social liberalism and probably can pull from it and, and grow within it, but also inflame it, right? And so I don't think it is, it's certainly not a coincidence that, that many of these extremist organizations have explicitly targeted and murdered LGBTQ activists, right? So it's very much part of the overall ideology. Now, I think anti-LGBTQ anti beliefs are probably widely held in Bangladesh. It doesn't mean these people are necessarily are, are going to run over to these extremist organizations. I think that's, of course, not the case, right? But it, it demonstrates, I think, a kind of social raw material that these sort of extremist organizations can pull from, and then their attacks, their rhetoric, their online recruitment inflames some of, of those social attitudes, and it normalizes it in a variety of ways. So I think they are, they're related in kind of an ideational way, but it's a kind of, I think, a complicated and almost reciprocal relationship between the sort of social conservatism that exists and then the organized extremism that can draw on it, but also inflame it. Uh, that's, that's really helpful. Um, I guess uh, one, one other but more specific question is that, um, if I'm not mistaken, in the report, um, there was an observation that the government seemed to be downplaying uh, 
uh, this kind of spectrum of, of attitudes or, or concerns, especially about the high end groups like ISIS. Did I get that right? Is that, is that correct? And, and why would that be? I wasn't clear on, on that. Sure. I think the, I think the concern on the part of the Awami League government is a post holy artisan, you had a kind of evaporation of, of economic activity. You had embassies start treating it as a high security post. Uh, you had companies pulling out, right? And so this hurt the, the, the country economically. It also hurt the general reputation of the country as a, as a country of some kind of syncretic and liberal interpretations of the religion. And so I think that the, the Awami League government, um, but probably any government that was in power, right, if it was a different government, probably would have been doing the same thing, has, I think, been wary of kind of overstating these connections, right, that they want to say these are domestic groups that are that are kind of coming out. These the terrorist groups are kind of domestic organizations that we can control ourselves. These are not linked to these bigger international issues, right? And by also keeping it as domestic, as terrorism as a domestic problem, it can be linked up to domestic politics, which is also to the advantage of the ruling party. So there are Islamist movements in the country, opposition parties, right? And when you kind of ground it in domestic issues. You can you can more effectively infuse politics into it. If it's a problem that, that's emanating from outside of the country, it's harder to make it political and it's also harder to control. So I think the government has downplayed this connection. But to me, the, the connections seem quite clear that that ISIS, AQS, these organizations have some degree of operations either online or on the ground in the country, despite uh, many of these denials, which I think is well documented in the media and, and other other reports. Great, thank you. Uh, very helpful, um, Mubasher. Let me let me come back to you now. Um, you know, there were these other. Uh, so we had four categories of extremism, and Jeffrey's talked about two of them. I wonder if you could pick up on on some of the others: this violence against non-Muslims in Bangladesh, and violence against Muslim minorities and secularists. No, I mean this. This has been a persistent problem uh, since 2013. Um, we have seen that there was every year there were um, targeted attack on religious minorities. Uh, they could. They are Hindus. They are Buddhist, um, and also uh, some Sufi Muslims um, as well who. Um, are proclaimed as non-Muslim by more hardline Islamists. Um, and this issue has been a recurrent theme, um, and that degree varies year to year. I think there was a, an also atheist where the uh, target of the militant attack, um, and over 40 uh, of killing that happened between 2013 and 2016 in Bangladesh. And they were uh, by highly organized uh, militant attack. And there were, in the media, there were uh, reports that there was a hit list and these uh, people were being targeted. Many of them were slain. Um, and the issue of Hindus, um, the issue of attack against the Hindus uh, has been persistent, um, and also the Buddhist. Um, and the re with the um, evolution of Facebook and the widespread use of Facebook, Facebook became a medium of... Um, uh, what is the best way to put it? Medium of uh, promoting religious hatred uh, against uh, religious minorities, um, and it is it, it is becoming a problem. And as I said, the degree varies year to year, um, but against the backdrop of international pressure and uh, much reporting, um, it seems to be quite down um, at the moment. But the mentality persist. And, and, and another complicated thing about these attacks is that many of them could be not religiously motivated while using this religious violence uh, uh, phase. Uh, many of them could be to uh, 
overtake their homes, uh, their properties, uh, and and those sort of stuff. And in Bangladesh, land grabbing uh, of political opposition is part of political culture. I'm not downplaying the by any way that the problem persists. What I'm saying that it is difficult to um, disassociate which one is religiously motivated attack and which are not religiously motivated attack. Even an, an attack which is not religiously motivated attack would use uh, the uh, camouflage of religious violence. Thank you. Uh, very helpful. And a couple of things I want to, the threads I want to pursue with you uh, a little further. Uh, before I do that, I did want to uh, remind our online audience that if you have questions, uh, you can put them in the question uh, box on usip.org if you're watching us uh, through that. But again, let me let me pick up uh, just at least one piece of this because you mentioned Facebook, uh, and this is this is a problem not just in Bangladesh but but elsewhere in terms of uh, the connections between social media and mobilization of, of violence uh, within societies. And I I just wanted to give you the opportunity to say a little bit more about how that has actually worked, um, and uh, and what if anything. Uh, anyone, including Facebook itself, uh, has done or might do uh, to to address that that one specific piece of the the puzzle. I think um, I would answer part, and it would be great if Jeffrey Johnson, because we both uh, co-written an article for the Foreign Policy magazine on this about um, uh, how Facebook fuels religious violence. So the part I want to focus on is the uh, the. Uh, pattern of the attacks on Facebook based on Facebook post were persistent. It's just someone would create fake Facebook post, and in that Facebook post, uh, there will be message that some some religious someone who is from religious minority background um, hurt the or, or dishonored the Muslim prophet and God, and w with that messaging, they would mobilize. Um, they would mobilize the local people, and then they will attack. Um, and this 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 has been the way many religious attacks um, took place in Bangladesh against the minorities. Um, maybe uh, Jeffrey could ju jump in with uh, our finding on how Facebook now uh, addressing this problem. Yeah, that'd be great, Jeffrey. Sure. Um... You know, I should first say, you know, I think I'm, I'm not a, a tech specialist, um, but I can give my kind of understanding, um, you know, when, you know, a lot of this stuff is, has been public, there's been a longstanding kind of, I think, debate between Facebook and its critics now for, for years at, at this point. You know, I think what, what Facebook says is they are trying to hire more, as Mubasher said, right, so you have explicit hate speech um, some of it fake, designed almost designed deliberately to to provoke these sorts of attacks. It seems right, and it's being put on Facebook, and Facebook is going to platform to provoke these sorts of attacks. You don't need Facebook for this type of violence, but we're seeing Facebook playing an increasingly common role in this type of violence. So, how do you control it? Facebook is saying they're hiring more kind of Bangla language specialists to be reviewing this. They're tweaking their algorithms, um, but it just quite honestly, it just doesn't seem to be working, right? I mean, and it maybe it is maybe it is diminishing and it's hard to know the counterfactual, right, of, of, of what it's taking down and how much it's able to control overall. But we're seeing it's essentially an annual recurrence here of this type of social media-driven violence. In fact, we're about the kind of the, the year, anniversary year, because Durga Puja, right, of, of the, a year ago, you had these large-scale Hindu riots that were provoked by a, a, a fake Facebook post. Um, that was, that was very, there was a video that was clearly deliberately fake that was made to provoke this sort of violence. So I think what, you know, not being a tech specialist, I, I would say, I think what we're interested in, in Facebook doing more or maybe enhancing its efforts to control this sort of rhetoric online and limiting its spread, right? It's hard to, to, to prevent it from going online, but you can limit its spread, right? How many times it's shared, how many likes it gets, how long it lasts 
online. And the offending videos from a year ago, if I remember correctly, were online for, for three days. If I and you can double check me on, on that, but for an extended period, I think it was three days, right? Online, right? Being shared, provoking the sort of violence before Facebook took it down. So it's, it's an extraordinarily difficult challenge to address, no doubt. I mean, the Facebook as a communications platform is just difficult to control. Um, but it seems clear that, that more needs to be done to prevent this type of hate speech, fake, fake rhetoric um, that's, that's being designed to exacerbate this sort of violence. Interesting. Well, this raises a lot of questions about um, policy options and, and policy directions. I want to get to those in a minute. Uh, I do want to make sure that we we get to the the heart of the matter, uh, which is I'm going to come back to Mubashir. Um, why <laughs> why does this continue to be such a such a problem? I mean, we've the two of you have done a fantastic job, kind of sketching out the the categories of of the problem. And, and systematically reviewing it and giving us reasons to be worried that it does persist. Um, but what are the what are the factors that, that lay this out? I think the report sets out five of them. Uh, some of them are longstanding. Some of them are new. Um, one is the influence of um, Islamist social political movements. Uh, so I wonder, you know, that's a, if you can unpack that. What a Islamist social political movement? What the, what do you mean by that? Um, and what work it's doing in your analysis. So um, Islamist socio-political movements, means there are um, illiberal religious forces uh, in the society who are organized and who are um, uh, pursuing and advancing um, at least uh, until 20 um aiding um vigorously they are pursuing agendas like secular and atheist uh, authors should be should face capital punishment there would be no mixing between uh, men and women in the public and 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 so forth so that is that is based on the islamic seminaries and um uh, a organization called Hefajat Islam that uh, who pursued it, and their their root many people um, <laughs> finds their root in 2008-13, but they are deeply rooted, and they their root <clears throat> could be traced back to the British colonial period. So they are deeply rooted into the society. Um, so that that is a that is a platform that advances illiberal values, um, and then there are uh, more formal uh, Islamist parties who also support these uh, illiberal values. And if you see the target of the who were the target in twenty third from twenty third into twenty sixteen, uh, they were the secular atheist uh, writers, bloggers, publishers, um, Sufi. Muslims, uh, non-Muslims, and so forth. And if you see that there is a correlation between the um, between the demand of this uh, Islamist socio-political movement, who do want them to be tried uh, legally. But at the same time, what do they do is that they popularize this idea that they are uh, enemy of religion. And within the popularized idea, that means that it gets some fuel and which uh, are then by, by, are recruited by the militant organization and execute those things. So that's, that's the way it, at least it worked um, in, in, the, in the past decade. Um, so, and also the problem of the counterpart, uh, the uh, secular, when we say secular, so we're not really talking about the liberal uh, force. It's also illiberal in many ways. So there is, so within this illiberal political, socio-cultural practice, um, more organized militant groups uh, took advantage. Very important. Okay, thank you. So, so that gives us a kind of a window into features of Bangladeshi society and politics, some of which are actually deeply rooted, as you say, and quite long-standing. I mean, go back to to um, pre-independence uh, time frame, um, Jeffrey. If I can switch over to you. Uh, there are aspects that are also new and different. So the story is evolving. And some of these are, are uh, quite new. Um, you, the report points to COVID-19 as a, as a 
perhaps an exacerbating factor, um, but also regional politics. And I wonder um, if you could pick one of these. I, I'm actually quite interested in the regional politics angle, um, how Bangladesh's neighbors and what's happening with them may be affecting uh, what's happening inside of Bangladesh uh, on these on these issues. Sure, happy to. And, and I'll focus on the regional politics, and we can come back to to COVID if there are if there are questions on that. So, you know, I think when we think about how regional politics is exacerbating this challenge of extremism, there are, I think, three key countries to look at. You could look at India, you look at Myanmar, and you look at Afghanistan, right? India probably has the, the outsized influence here as the as the big neighbor. I think what we've seen under the, the BJP is a rise in rhetoric and policies that are widely perceived in Bangladesh, if not kind of explicitly seen as, um, as anti-Muslim. Right, the citizenship regist registry in Assam, the citizen citizenship amendment act. There have been border killings of Bangladeshis on the border. Right, a lot of this is kind of ramping up. Right, anti-Indian sentiment. Right, that I think at least anecdotally appears to be growing. And there's not not great survey data on this question, but you know, I've been working on Bangladesh for for close to a decade. I think you hear on the street at the elite level. Criticism, more, far more criticism of India than I've seen, right? I think it's been building over time and kind of reaching a peak at this point. And I think what we saw, I think, demonstrated by the, the protests in 2021 around Narendra Modi's visit to Dhaka, you had large scale protests. You know, Hafaza led many of them, right? Mubashir discussed Hafaza, but there were also con conservative madrasas. You had leftists also protesting, right? So it's a, it's a diverse uh, movement here that's quite critical of India, right? And because anti Hindu and anti Indian sentiment um, are seen in the rhetoric of these extremist organizations, right? You see it online, you see ISIS, AQIS, these other extremist organizations talking about how. Indian influence, Hindu influence is a, is bad for Bangladesh. When you see the masses also moving to that view, it also it, it kind of feeds this this dynamic. And so you have kind of anti-Muslim actions in India pushing this dynamic of extremism in in Bangladesh. Um, on Myanmar, I think the actions of of Myanmar on uh, targeting the, the Muslim Rohingya community also feeds extremism, right? And probably in, in two key ways. One, it can, it can provoke anti-Buddhist action and sentiment in the border regions. Right? And I've done research in these border regions with, with, in Buddhist communities that have been targeted by kind of Islamist and, and Jamaat-led led violence in those areas. And they'll say that when you see repression of Muslims across the border, Jamaat Islamist movements in the local area will use that example to target to target their community, and so you've seen it spur this this type of radicalization. A second way is just the Rohingya camps themselves have become focal points of potential radicalization, at least right. So you're seeing kind of Islamist groups like like ARSA in the Rohingya community becoming more powerful. Islamist Bangladeshi groups are providing a lot of aid and support and are quite popular in the camps. We don't want to overstate this threat and, and present refugees as kind of inherent threat because um, they're, they're certainly not. But research in the camps, and including my own and my own research in, in the camps, like there is concern even among Rohingya themselves about the influence of, kind of Islamist movements and, and radicalization there, right? So you're seeing by the anti the Myanmar action inflaming the problem. Finally, Afghanistan, right, which is is a much more contemporary issue. I mean, I guess they're all contemporary, but Afghanistan we're talking about the Taliban takeover, so so quite recent, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of concern that the Taliban victory has the potential to embolden terrorism. There are reports that at least a handful of Bangladeshis went to Afghanistan to kind of join the, the Taliban's fight uh, against, against the government there. After the victory, there's a lot of analysis of social media in Bangladesh that showed kind of widespread celebration and praise of, of the Taliban. So there's concern among security analysts that the Taliban's victory could inspire radicalization. It could encourage militants potentially to go back to Afghanistan for training, which was an issue that 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 Bangladesh saw in the in the 80s. It could revive some of the support for domestic groups, which seemed to be be not quite dormant, but 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 uh, but contained relatively well, and potentially embolden some of these extremist groups to to ramp up their recruitment. Right, and so you're seeing 
all of these kind of regional dynamics, kind of what happens domestically in these countries is feeding into a dynamic of extremism in Bangladesh. It's hard for the Bangladesh government to control. It's just something that is, is occurring largely at, it's outside of their borders and in ways that they, they can't, they, they, they don't, they have, they have limited kind of levers to control this, this, these sorts of issues. Thank you. Yeah, an incredibly difficult uh, neighborhood. One could imagine sticking Bangladesh someplace else on the on the world map, uh, where it wouldn't have so many of these transnational um, factors to to have to grapple with. Uh, listen, we're getting a lot of great questions coming in, um, and I want to I want to give some some time to those. I do want to remind our audience that if you want to ask questions, you can put them in on usip.org. Uh, there is a, a question function there. Um, Mubasher, uh, I was going to ask you this anyway, but some of our questioners have have already gotten to it. They're trying to uh, draw the connection between the state of democracy in Bangladesh um, and some of these outcomes. And, you know, uh, so here we have, uh, let's see if I can pull up one, questions about the concentration of power in the Awami League, um, a shift in alliance uh, with Islamist politicians and actors, towards the Awami League. So some of the, the features within democratic politics and specifically party politics, but also if you wouldn't mind commenting on the broader state of democracy and how that relates to these problems, I think that would be useful. Um, no, that's a great question. Um, I think if, to understand Bangladesh, one should look into the uh, vast number of youths in the country. Uh, most, um, a majority of Bangladeshis now uh, are born after 1971, so it gives an understanding that it's a it's a it's a country full of young people, and it's a natural tendency of the youth to enjoy freedom if they are not grown up in a highly authoritarian dictatorial country, which Bangladesh was not. Um, and then, so there is a direct, in many ways, there are some correlation between the persistent authoritarianism, human rights violation, and uh, people are not being able to express uh, politically within the bound of law. So I think it's a, it's a paramount importance that um, there, you know, there should be more uh, on more to support political pluralism and uh, democracy in Bangladesh. The country hasn't seen any uh, free and fair elections since 2008. Um, and most of the most of the talks we talk about in our report happened within the past decade. And uh, that says a lot without saying things um, explicitly, I think. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so the closing of, of political space, uh, you're pointing out, is is not just. I mean, it's an immediate problem or a problem that's been going on for the past decade, but it is also a kind of a deeper problem in terms of what the expectations of the young Bangladeshis are for their for their polity, uh, which is really important. So, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time now talking about all the problems. Uh, and, uh, and that's quite right, because I think a big part of your report is to make sure that readers appreciate that, um, even if the, the sort of absolute level of violence may be down in certain ways, uh, the problems, the underlying problems, as you uh, put it, uh, do persist, but let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some potential, uh, solutions or, or partial solutions or policy recommendations, um, that the report brings to bear. So Jeffrey, you, you talk about, um, Maybe something about to do with uh, efforts to promote social pluralism or tolerance, uh, counter online. We already talked about countering online radicalization in a way, or at least the, the narrow issue of dealing with social media. Um, and maybe also something to do with interreligious uh, relations. Uh, that might be an area where, where you can address to kick things off. Sure, happy to. And I think you know, we propose in the report some high-level recommendations that that no doubt are building on existing approaches to, to PCV that we kind of are preventing about preventing encountering about extremism that should be expanded. I think we could think of these as kind of strategic priorities, many of which already exist that we should kind of build out in these local contexts. And I think part of these recommendations is not necessarily to say that none of this is going on, but some of it might. might some 
do, but that we should maintain our focus on them, right? In this era, I mean, you've seen a lot of international funding shift elsewhere, a lot of attention shifting elsewhere. And so we think a lot of the attention of what, what we were doing, what, what was going on in Bangladesh right after Holy Artisan should still be doing, right? Because a lot of those underlying factors remain, even, even if we're seeing the, the kind of level of attacks go down. And so a couple issues that 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 we raise on promoting social uh, pluralism and tolerance, right? We're seeing, as we lay out in the report, a lot of survey data among ordinary Bangladeshis hold show show a lot of illiberal social attitudes that feed some of this kind of domestic. Um, social violence targeting LGBTQ individuals or Hindus or atheists, right? Others, right? And so certainly thinking about infusing more liberalism into the public education system, into public messaging uh, on television, on radio, on social media, kind of foster more tolerance, right? And Bangladesh, in many ways, is a remarkably tolerant country. Again, I want to come back to this point of trying not to overstate the problem, but, but we do see intolerance, right? We see it at the social level and we see people dying because of it, right? So, so it is something that, that needs to be addressed. And I think efforts to promote more tolerance among alternative beliefs, views, identities, lifestyles is an important component of a kind of counter extremism strategy. In terms of on, online radicalization, you know, um, you know, we've we've seen under COVID, and and perhaps you know can come back to this that the pandemic has has fueled a lot of online radicalization. So you can see counter messaging, uh, you know, preventive messaging to try to blunt the impact of this. There's always a concern around kind of freedom of speech in the online space, right? And there have been issues in Bangladesh around the Digital Security Act, right? I think the state there is a balance here of certainly the state researchers, you know, NGOs need to be watching that online space closely for radicalization, but make sure, make sure, and it's hard to do, but make sure that that boundary of legitimate speech in legitimate criticism, right, of the state or others is maintained, right, that that isn't perceived as radicalization as well. And those, that sort of push and pull always has to be aware of, uh, we have to be aware of. And then Finally, the, the other the other issue you you raised on interreligious kind of uh, harmony across the region, right? As I laid out, you know, across South Asia, we're seeing religious tension within and between these countries rising. That the actions of Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists in one country is kind of spilling over and feeding into kind of destructive political dynamics across the border. You know, Bangladesh has this long history and heritage of pluralism in in the country, right? And I think Bangladesh playing a kind of greater role in the region to foster this type of, kind of cross-border interreligious dialogue and tolerance. I think there's, despite some of the problems that occur in Bangladesh, it is, I think, well-positioned as a country, given its history, given its record of pluralism and tolerance, to play a leading role in promoting these types of ideas. And so I think I'd like to see the Bangladesh government do more of that, play more of a big diplomatic role on those types of issues. Thank you, Jeffrey. Um, you know, I, I want to come back to you in a minute. First, I want to go to Mubashar again, but um, I want you to think about, because most of those recommendations are directed really toward the government of Bangladesh. And a lot of our questions that were coming in right now have something to do with what outside uh, countries, whether it's the United States um, or others or, or international um, NGOs or, or other groups might do uh, to more effectively address some of these problems as well. But Mubashar, uh, coming to you, you know, the report makes a point about uh, what it describes as a do no harm approach to counterterrorism. Uh, and uh, one of the questioners has asked us, and I think this relates very directly, uh, something about Bangladesh's government, the government's history of police excess and abuses and anti-terror laws, uh, and about the question of what protections there should be um, from the use of terrorism as a means to quash dissent and freedom of conscience, um, especially with no functioning political opposition. So it seems to be this, this issue of maybe going too far, the state uh, using um, uh, the, the, the goal of counterterrorism uh, to certain political ends. And you make the point that, you know, above all, do, do no harm. So what, what do you mean by that? What does that look like? Um, the do no harm approach means the uh, respect for rule of law. Uh, sorry, um, 
not politicizing counterterrorism operation, making it at a, as a focus of a state uh, security. While you know nowadays we are seeing uh, terminology as such that information terrorists being used by the government to refer to dissents and critics, and it's it's really downplays the seriousness of uh, counterterrorism approaches. Uh, second point uh, I wanted to go back um, and then I will come back to the do, do no harm approach is that an important point uh, we mentioned in the report um, is that even though there are wider support for illiberal values and the 2017 uh, resolved network research uh, found that there's a strong support for uh, democracy as well. So while there are support for illiberal values, there are also support for democracy among the Bangladeshis and they say uh, Sharia or or certain some sort of Islamic governance as an um, as an alternative to a corrupt government. So one could see and uh, try to if they try to understand it, there is a, there is an there is a saying that um, legitimate political opposition is uh, it, it will be a, a some sort of antidote uh, to this problem, which goes back to the our own analysis is that opening up the political space. And on the point of um, on the point of this um, do no harm approach means also is that rule of law, uh, respect for uh, human rights, no politicization of counterterrorism approach and um finally it, it it should it should increase the credibility of this operation among the community rather than as you could see from from some of the comments that uh, their uh, credibility is not that high at the moment and government also need to be careful about using the word terrorist as like you know information terrorists and those sort of widespread and generalizing this uh, thing. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a, <laughs> in some ways that's a tough balancing act uh, and it mm -hmm. raises the question again, I'll come back to, to Jeffrey, you know, if you wouldn't mind commenting on, uh, so the, the government of Bangladesh, this government uh, hasn't taken a number of these steps, uh, even some of the ones that you would recommend or others and has taken a pretty, politicized uh, uh, approach to, to these problems, um, as we've already been discussing. So for the rest of us outside of Bangladesh, uh, are there things, say, that the U.S. government might do more effectively or international NGOs might do uh, to push these issues um, in ways that, that would be constructive? Yeah, I mean, I think of, of, of of course, there there are, and in, in some ways, recommendations that that we make or others make to the to the government of Bangladesh can also they can be supported or implemented by NGOs and other types of organizations, right? So, you know, things like promoting pluralism and tolerance. You know, many NGOs might not have direct access to the education system, but you can support civic education work across the country that promotes these types of values. You can have NGOs doing online counter-radicalization, counter and many do. I mean, the United Nations, has, has UNDP has done this sort of work. My organization, IRI, has done this type of work of online peace messaging, kind of counter and counter and alternative messaging online done to try to counter kind of radical, uh, radical views. Um, you know, on promoting democracy and pluralism, I think Robasher was was kind of alluding to this, and we talked a bit about how the the narrowing of political space can drive radicalization. There's a role for democracy and governance NGOs to be promoting and encouraging, uh, you know, open and fair competition, strength of political parties across the board to make it just a more vibrant democracy in which all parties are participating and strong, right? And that is a party that that is a type of a political system that can draw people in, right? As opposed to pushing people out, right? And I think we're seeing a political system that's a fair amount of political violence, right? A, a high degree of polarization, and it's pushing people out. And the more it pushes people out, the more likely I think we are to see radicalization. And so I think that the government of Bangladesh is aware of these issues, can address them, but no doubt NGOs can support the government of Bangladesh in that and directly implement a lot of these types of, of programs. 
Thank you. Um, you know, we're coming, we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, I did want to just, uh, you know, there was, there was one question about U.S. Bangladesh security cooperation. And, you know, that, that raises the, the, the point about how the United States has actually uh, placed sanctions on, on the RAB, Rapid Action Battalion. Um, also, on uh, the question of, of the U.S. not including Bangladesh in the democracy summit, uh, I wonder, Mubashir. I don't. I don't want you to. I don't want to put you on the spot for giving the United States a, a report card uh, or a grade on its on its use of these kinds of tools of policy. But do you see ways the United States might use its relationship with Bangladesh um, effectively to to help to address uh, these issues? So not just the NGOs, but the direct U.S. government role. It seems to me that there are more engagement uh, between the government of both countries after the uh, sanction and the um, non-invitation uh, to democracy summit. And I think um, it, it is, in a way, it is increasing. And that also says something about the importance of this relationship between both countries. So generally a positive, positive outcome from that uh, somewhat critical uh, approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. I, 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 yeah, I think that that made both governments to engage more that, right. that we could see. Yeah. Yeah, good. All right. Well, we are at the end of the hour. Uh, so this is my uh, time to, to thank both of you, uh, Mubasher and Jeffrey, uh, for both a great conversation and an excellent report. Uh, again, I commend it to everyone online. Uh, check it out at usip.org. The title is The Persistent Challenge of Extremism in Bangladesh. Uh, obviously, we'll be doing more work on Bangladesh uh, in the future. And um, you can also check out the other work that, that our, our two authors have done uh, with other institutions. So thanks again to all of you, and you. we'll look forward to seeing you at, at future events. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.